In the church where I grew up, back in Virginia, uh, we had a tradition. And you may all have a similar tradition here, or it might be familiar or not. Um, but we had a tradition in which the young children of the church, when they had graduated from one grade in Sunday school, they received an award. And they'd have to come down in front of the whole church and and they normally present it with, with, with a certificate that says, you know, congratulations, Bobby or Susie, on having completed the fourth grade Sunday school class. And these went on for pretty much all the years of Sunday school. But I remember there was one big award. When you graduated from the sixth grade, you got a Bible. I guess this was the, to symbolize, you know, a child's, you know, growing into adulthood and, and a time in their life to start taking the faith more seriously. But I remember being so excited to get that Bible. And I remember it well. It was a, it was a little RSV Bible with a, with a red cover. And, and, and the coolest part was it had my name on it. Stamped on the front in gold letters was my name. Going up and getting that Bible was a big deal. And I remember for the rest of the day, I, I walked around church with my Bible and I had a, a prideful beam on my face. This was my Bible. Of course, I, I'd had Bibles before, but you know, they were kids' Bibles. This was a real grown-up Bible. And sure, there were Bibles around my house, but this one had my name on it. It was my Bible. I was so proud of that Bible. When I got home, I, I put it on my dresser, and I just looked at it and was like, that's my Bible. Now, unfortunately, like most kids, my Bible sat on my dresser as I went outside and ran around and played sports. Not so much read, but admired, still prominently displayed, but largely unread. Until one day a little later, I finally decided to, you know, actually open up and, and get into it a little bit. And I remember when I opened it, I found out something that just fascinated me. Out of the pages of my Bible, a bookmark fell. And the bookmark said something to this effect. Every time you open this book, you will be filled with wisdom and knowledge. Well, you can probably imagine what an enterprising young 12-year-old did next. I took the bookmark at its most literal word, and sure enough, for the next half an hour, I stood there opening and shutting, opening and shutting, opening and shutting my book. Am I flooding, you know, with wisdom and knowledge, led by my bookmark to believe. And not surprisingly, I did not become the brightest and wisest 12-year-old in the land. Rather, I was just a dumb kid who was opening and closing a book over and over and who eventually got sore forearms. Now, many of us would not be so foolish as, as to simply think opening and shutting a Bible would make us wise. However, I think if we're honest, many of us would like to find a shortcut to the Christian life. Deep down, we think or believe that out there somewhere is some kind of a magic bullet or, or a secret to the Christian life and that one day, somehow, we're going to stumble across it and become the men and women that God would have us to be. 
Or perhaps if, if we don't think there's a magic bullet out there, we think that if just given enough time, we will grow into the people we are called to be. That somehow time on its own will help us to, to grow in sanctification and eventually we'll simply become better Christians. There's a belief out there that holds that if we just simply survive, if we can just continue to carry on in our lives, that somehow God will make us holy. Peter, however, has a very different message for us. In our text this evening, Peter is telling us that it is not simply good enough to survive as Christians. To borrow language from Paul, we are more than conquerors in Christ. And we are to live lives not simply as survivors, but conquerors. A call to follow Christ goes beyond mere survival. It is a call to overcome. And as difficult as this message might be for us, it must have been a lot more difficult for Peter's original audience. Peter addresses his original audience in this epistle as the elect exiles of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Basically modern-day Turkey. And while we can't say with 100% confidence what exactly the context of the situation facing these believers was, we can gather from this letter that they were facing persecution for their faiths and their faiths were being tested. It is likely that many have been ostracized from their families, perhaps lost their jobs, maybe even chased from their homes, all for the sake of the gospel. As new believers, they were being tested both outwardly and inwardly by a world that was hostile to the message of Christianity, and it is likely that their only refuge was the church. Now we might expect Peter here to tell these pilgrim believers, these suffering believers, don't worry, everything's going to be all right. After all, this is often how we respond to suffering around us. We tell people not to worry, to keep a stiff upper lip, that this too shall pass. We encourage others to simply endure, that surviving will make us stronger. But Peter's message to the believers in our text is that it's not enough for Christians to simply survive. It's not sufficient for the believer to simply make it through this world. It's not sufficient for us to say at the judgment day we went to church. It's not sufficient even for us to say at the judgment that we believed. Because as the Apostle James reminds us, faith without works is dead. And a faith that is content to merely come to church, to merely survive, is not a Christian faith. Rather, Peter tells us in our text and really throughout his entire epistle, that we must strive and work out our faith. We must, be, we must be prepared not simply to survive pressures and the temptations of this world, but we are to overcome them. You see, Peter here gives us not a magic shortcut, but an instructional manual on how we are to live as Christians in this world. This is not only the point of this passage, but the point of the entire book. As John Calvin notes, The main object of this epistle is to raise us above the world in order that we may be prepared and encouraged to sustain the spiritual contests of our warfare. 
So in our text this evening, I think Peter points out three points that for how we as believers are to live in our fallen and sinful world. First, we are to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. Second, we are to put off the things of the past. And thirdly, we are to live in the reality of what is to come. First, we are to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. Peter writes, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Peter tells us that we must arm ourselves. If we are to thrive in the Christian life, if we are to put to death sin in our lives and become the men and women God would have us to be, we must prepare for battle. We must prepare for warfare. Now, many are uncomfortable with this kind of language being used in relation to Christianity. I don't know if it's because they feel that it'll make us sound too much like the Muslims, or whether it's because they prefer Christianity to be more serene, pacifistic. However, the Bible makes frequent references to war, to violence, and to fighting, and does so positively. Christians are indeed at war and need to be prepared for a fight. But at the same time, it must be remembered, as Paul reminds us, that our struggle is not against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The Christian is called to prepare for a fight and to be at war, but a war not with our neighbors, but with the spirits of the age, with the devil, and with sin. Peter in our passage here tells us we are to arm ourselves not with guns or swords, but with the mindset of Christ. And this is not a passive act. We don't simply receive the mindset of Christ. We must intentionally and willfully choose to put ourselves into this mindset. And this is the the mindset that Peter has envisioned here is not, not a general sense of the mindset of Christ but specifically the mindset that led Christ to the cross. Peter is calling us to take up the mindset of Christ that we might destroy our sinful flesh and live for God. Just as Christ had to die to defeat sin, so we must die to ourselves to defeat sin in our own lives. And that's exactly why I think this kind of more active, violent language is employed here. Sin doesn't simply disappear on its own in our lives. Rather, sin's a disease that embeds, that festers within us. It doesn't get better with time. Actually, if left alone, it gets worse. The great Puritan theologian John Owen wrote a treatise once called The Mortification of Sin. In this work, which was an enlargement of a sermon he gave on Romans 8.13, Owen argued that it is the duty of every Christian believer to mortify sin in their lives. It is not enough for Christians to simply sin less or to avoid the big ones. Rather, Owen argues sin is a disease which must be violently uprooted out of the life of the believer. 
No quarter must be given to the enemy. Sin must be destroyed in our lives if any of us hope to live godly lives. As Owen notes, the vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depends on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. If we wish to live for Christ, we must not simply hold on, but we must actively press on, rooting out our sin. We must die to self and put on Christ. Likewise, the the great evangelical Bishop J.C. Ryle wrote in his expository thoughts on the gospel, how much we ought to hate sin. Instead of loving it, cleaving to it, dallying with it, excusing it, playing with it, we ought to hate it with a deadly hatred. Sin is the great murderer and thief and pestilence and nuisance of this world. Let us make no peace with it. Let us wage a ceaseless Warfare against it. What does it mean to put on the mindset of Christ? It means to follow Christ in the putting of death to sin. It is an active and intentional warfare on sin in our lives. It is the continual and determined uh, determined effort of the believer to destroy sin in their life and to live for God. Secondly, we are to put off the things of the past. Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension serve not simply as an example for us. They work, the work of Christ did far more than just serve as an example for us to emulate. In Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, He put to death sin once and for all. He defeated the powers of Satan and of this world, and He ushered in the new kingdom. As a result, we now live not in the past, the age of sin, but we're able to live in the light of the glory of that kingdom. As a result, we live a life that puts on the mindset of Christ, which allows us to see the world as it truly is, to see the sin of the world as fleeting, as the pagan days of the world as being numbered. Peter continues in our text in verse 3, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Sin, Peter notes, is the mark of the pagan. Sin is how we lived before we became Christians. But that time is now past. Peter gives us here a list of sins. And while graphic... There are only a few of the sins that define our former lives. There are only a few of the sins that, that define how we lived, that, that emulated the selfishness of the pagan lifestyle. And that's the one thing they have in common. They're about self, about feeding the passions of self. We are currently living in the midst of a pagan and on-demand world. A world that increasingly seeks to fill the demands of self with sinful desires and pleasures. We live in a me, me, me world with mottos that tell us that anything but first is a loser. That he who dies with the most toys wins. 
Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Love yourself, because if you don't, no one else will. Self, 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 me, me, me. And if it weren't enough that Christians had to live in a world of selfishness and of sin and of this kind of pagan behavior, we're also mocked, ridiculed, and maligned when we don't take part. Peter, once again, writes, They think it is strange that you do not plunge, plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. So committed are the pagans of this world to their own selfish desires and pursuits that they view anyone who does not share their worldview, who does not follow in the ways of sin as the enemy. Such are the temptations and trials that Christians must endure. The temptation of former sins, the temptation of living for yourself, the trials of being mocked for not putting self first. However, we know that this time has passed. And not simply in our own lives, but but for all of humanity. When Christ came and died for sins, and then was resurrected and ascended into heaven, He put to death the reign of sin. He defeated Satan and the powers of this world. And He ushered in a new era. Christ's kingdom is at hand. And while we may have to wait for its consummation, when Christ returns, we know that He currently reigns. We Christians know that even though it may appear that the world is thriving, that pagan sinfulness and selfishness seem to triumph, their days are limited and their time has passed. Peter reminds us, but they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. All men and women will have to face the judgment. And all will have to give an account for their lives. Those who reveled in their sins who sought in this life to fill the needs of the flesh, who only strove to to live for their passions, will be judged and found wanting. But for the Christian, there is good news. Peter says in verse 6, For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they may be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. Through the power of the gospel, through the work of Christ, we have been freed from sin. Christ in his death destroyed sin in the life of the believer. It is as a result of this new reality that we are no longer bound to sin. No longer bound to the sinful life. But through the gospel that was preached to us, we have been transformed from a people who were once dead in their sins and trespasses into a people who are now able to live in the light of His marvelous grace. Having the mindset of Christ, we are able to see the world as it truly is. The pagan world, the life of sin, they're living on borrowed time. Therefore, it's incumbent on the Christian not to live in the past. To mortify sin, that refuge of all things old and passing, and instead to live in the light of their new reality. Third, we are to live in the reality of what is to come. The end of all things is near, Peter writes. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind 
so that you may pray. The end of all things is near. When Christ was resurrected and ascended into heaven, it marked the beginning of a new era. Christ's ascension inaugurated a new kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, in which he currently is at the right hand of God, reigning now and for all eternity. While the kingdom has been inaugurated, we still must wait for its eventual consummation. We wait for the day in which Christ will return and put all things under his feet. That day when he will come and judge the world, where he will put all things aright, when creation itself will be restored. Putting on the mindset of Christ means we are to recognize that the time is coming. That the end of all things is near and we are to prepare and live accordingly. Be alert. Be sober-minded, Peter tells us. This is in contrast to the drunkenness and the lustfulness of the pagans. Whereas they lived only for today, to fill only their passions and their stomachs, their desires and their wants, the Christian lives for tomorrow, for what is to come. We live in expectation of the kingdom which is coming. As a result, we are to pray. Charles Spurgeon says a prayer that the very act of prayer is a blessing. To pray is, as it were, to bathe in a cool, swirling stream, and so to escape from the heat of our summer sun. To pray is to mount on eagle's wings above the clouds and get into the clear heaven where God dwells. To pray is to enter the treasure house of God and to gather riches out of an inexhaustible storehouse. To pray is to grasp heaven in one's arms, to embrace the deity with one's soul, to feel one's body made a temple of the Holy Spirit. Prayer is a powerful tool of the Christian. Perhaps there's no better tool for arming oneself with the mindset of Christ than to be actively engaged in prayer. A life that lives in the reality of what is to come, though, is not only devoted to prayer, but also to love and service. Picking up in verse 8, Peter writes, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gifts you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Putting on the mindset of Christ not only means intentionally dying to sin, but also means living for God. Living in the light of that reality that is coming. Living in the reality of the kingdom that is coming. And that reality manifests itself in our love for those who are around us. Whereas the pagan serves himself to fill his own desires and passions, the Christian, by contrast, has died to self and now lives for others. Living a life that values and loves others is the evidence of the gospel at work 
in your hearts and lives. What a comfort it is to hear the words, love covers a multitude of sins. We'll all continue to fall short of our callings. We will continue to struggle with mortifying sin in our own lives. We will continue to struggle to put to death our own selfish desires. But we are told that as we love one another, even imperfectly, God is pleased. When we love one another, when we show hospitality to each other, and when we serve one another in the church, God is glorified. Living in the reality of what is to come means that the Christian and the church are to emulate the coming kingdom. The kingdom of Christ in which all things will be done in love and for his glory. When we serve one another, when we serve the church, no matter what capacity, whether it's leading in worship, serving tea and coffee, or simply listening and bearing one another's burdens, we glorify God. Living a life of service and love to others, however, does not come naturally. We must intentionally put on the mindset of Christ. We must intentionally and willfully crucify our sinful flesh. We must put aside the things of our past, and we must commit to serving Christ through loving and serving one another. We must be intentional Christians. Because if we're not, if we fail to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, if we simply decide to be content with surviving, we jeopardize everything. In C.S. Lewis's classic, The Screwtape Letters, a senior demon screwtape advises a younger demon, Wormwood, about tempting a recent Christian. Screwtape tells Wormwood about the value of small sins and the importance of preventing a Christian from being about the hard work of sanctification. Screwtape writes, You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Gentle, easy road is the safest road to hell. It's not enough to avoid the big sins in life and simply survive. Sin, even the small ones, if allowed to remain in our hearts, separate us from God. We must be like Christ and actively put to death sin in our life and intentionally live for the will of God. The path of following Christ is not an easy one. But the good news is that we are not facing this fight alone. Rather, we have the promise of God that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let us pray.